Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 11, verses 37 to 54. Give you a second to find that. Luke 11, 37 to 54. Listen as God speaks his word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuaries. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to worship kids' style right now. Worship kids' style. Parents is a time of age-appropriate lessons and worship for kids. You are also welcome to keep your kids with you during the service, and we have nursery care that is provided. Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, we are sinful people. Your Word challenges us in our sin. I pray that you would soften our hearts and make us attentive to it. I am a sinful man, nonetheless called to proclaim it. Be with all of us sinners, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be at work in and through us. Amen. So I was thinking this week, one of the things that a lot of people have commented on in our moment in time in America is this phenomena of people that are spiritual but not religious, right? Who have spiritual beliefs but aren't really engaged with the church or with religious activities. That's a lot of people, depending how you measure it. I mean, I don't know if you saw, I was thinking about this in part because a couple weeks ago there were all these headlines because Gallup had found in their latest survey that the, the number of Americans that identified as a member of a church had dropped just below 50%, which, I mean, that, that's been happening for a while. 
But what's interesting about that number is that way more Americans than that have spiritual beliefs. Like, I mean, depending how you measure it, like if you ask people if they believe in God, between 80 and 90 percent of Americans say yes. And if you ask about, you know, some kind of higher power or a more general question, it's even higher. Like 77 percent of Americans pray at least somewhat regularly. So there's lots of people that have these spiritual beliefs and the spiritual part of their lives, but that are not engaged with the church and with religion. Here's the question. Is that a bad thing? Of course, we all instinctively want to say yes, and there's a lot of ways in which we're right, right? Biblically, there are a lot of problems with that. Particularly, that phenomena is kind of an expression of this thing deep in our American DNA, this extreme individualism, right? Where we just want to say, like, all that matters is me and God, right? And this vertical relationship that I have with God. And of course, as Christians, we would say that does matter, right? That relationship directly between you and God as an individual. But there's also these horizontal relationships that really matter a lot, too, that God's calling us to be a people together and have a transformed community and to live out our life with him together. So in that sense, absolutely, yeah, we would want to push back. But I ask the question because I feel like there's this other thing that happens where people like most of us who are sort of religious people, church-going people, right, engaged with that, when we hear, when we hear people criticize it or we meet people like that, our tendency is to respond by saying, what are you talking about? Religion is great. The church is great. There's not anything wrong with churches or with religion and kind of end up defending all of these things that we ought not be defending. In Scripture... God loves and values the church and calls us to certain religious practices, but there are also many parts of scripture with very intense warnings against the ways that religion can go wrong and against false religion. There's a good biblical way to be religious, but there's also a twisted, sinful way, and it's very important for us not to end up defending the latter of those in the name of the former. When we're criticized or when the church or religion is criticized, we always first need to ask, is that legitimate? Is there a sort of false religion that's being criticized? And I say all of that starting out because in many ways in Scripture, the person who goes after religion the most, goes after false religion the most, is Jesus. And this text is one of the clearest examples of that. Jesus' ministry has continued to grow, and he's facing increasing opposition. And now this is one of the points where he's really coming into direct conflict with the religious leaders of Israel. And we need to read this text, not in terms of the specifics of just the Pharisees and ancient Israel, but we need to recognize that this is something that Jesus would speak to us, too, as people that are, most of us again, being sort of church-going religious people. So with that in mind, let's just walk through what this story says. Start in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. So this is, Jesus has meals all through the Gospel of Luke. One commentator says he eats his way through the Gospel of Luke, and this is another instance. This time he's eating with these Pharisees, and he doesn't wash his hands, which I know the kids that are still in here are thinking, see, you know, and the grown-ups are all like, ugh, especially in COVID time, right? <laughs> We're like, oh, no, but this is not about hygiene, just to be clear. Nobody in the ancient world... Uh, 
thought in terms of germ theory. And as near as we can tell, the way these hand washings worked is they'd have this bowl sitting out that you'd walk in and everyone would just dip their hands and wash it. And then the next person would and the next person would and they wouldn't change the water, right? So in terms of hygiene, this is not actually probably great anyway. This is about religious activity. So in the Old Testament law that Jesus and the Pharisees followed, there was this system of ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. There are certain things you would do that would make you ceremonially unclean. It's not the same thing as sin. It's sort of meant to communicate the underlying corruption and brokenness of the world. But these things that you would do that would make you unclean, and then you would have to do these ritual washings that would make you ceremonially clean again. And this is not one of those Old Testament washings. But what happened was the Pharisees and the really religious people in Israel, they said, well, if this is a thing, then we're going to add a whole bunch of other ritual washings to have people do too, just to make like extra sure that they're ceremonially clean. And so before every meal was one of the times that they would have people wash like this. It's sort of this unwritten rule that went beyond the law of Moses, but that all the religious people in Jesus' day kind of saw as like, if you're really religious, you will do this thing. I mean, if I get, this totally still happens in our world. Like a really obvious example that I was thinking about is just like the churches that have unwritten dress codes, right? In both directions, like there's the suit and tie churches and there's the like t-shirt and ripped jeans churches. And if someone walks into the church dressed strong, right? You know, like if they, if they go to the other church dressed that way, then people look at them and those people know it doesn't say the way they're dressed in the Bible, right? Like they understand that, but they're like, but if you really got Christianity, you know, you'd be dressed like us, right? You'd still follow these kind of unwritten rules. And that was sort of how the Pharisees processed these things. But Jesus breaks that unwritten religious rule. He shows up in a t-shirt and they're all wearing suits. And then he starts talking to them about it because he knows that they're offended. If you pick up in verse 39, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now first, I just want to say about this text as a whole. Jesus does not always talk like this in the Gospels. There are certain Christians that are way too in love with the way Jesus talks in this and a couple of other passages. With the broken and sinful, Jesus is gentle and tender. And even with kind of the falsely religious or people that are missing his kingdom, he often will respond with a story or a question. But there are a few times, like this one, where Jesus is kind of just a fierce lion. He just cuts loose. And it's worth noting that every one of those times in the Gospels, he's dealing with false religion and the religious leaders in his world. But he first says, you're like people who wash the outside of a cup, but the inside is still dirty. And on one level, we get the grossness of that image, right? Like my, my dishwasher is not great sometimes, and I'll like pull out bowls, and then I'll be like, oh, like, okay, we need to wash that again, because it looks clean on the outside, and then you look inside, and there's still junk in there. On another level, this is also even more a, an attack on the Pharisees, because we mentioned those ritual washings that they did for everything, and another part of that was washing bowls and cups and utensils and so they would have a sense that if you hadn't washed the inside this is still ceremonially unclean even though it might look like it's ceremonially clean but jesus's point of course is just that they're so focused on the outside looking good they're so focused on appearing righteous that they are ignoring and covering sin and evil in their heart that they're not
not dealing with the actual corruption inside, which is a problem, of course, for Jesus, because God cares about the heart. And he makes that clear. He says, give as alms the things that are within, and everything else will be clean. And in some ways, that ties in with the next thing he says in verse 42. He says, but woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So God's law does command his people to tithe, to set aside a tenth of what they have for the service of his kingdom. That's a way to teach us um, generosity and to break us of greed. But what the Pharisees did is they were really meticulous in tithing, meaning it's not just that they like gave 10% of their paycheck or like of what came out of their field, but like the basil and the oregano that you've got on your back patio, you know, for cooking, like they would go out and clip off every 10th leaf of, the, of those plants and give them to God to make sure that they were really tithing of ev- all of their increase. And they're doing that, Jesus says, and at the same time, they're ignoring justice and the love of God. They're not dealing with the poor and oppression. They're not seeking to know and love and delight in the Lord. And so it's not that their obedience was wrong exactly. In fact, Jesus says, yeah, you shouldn't neglect tithing, but it's that they're using this one area of obedience, and in many ways this more surface area of obedience, to excuse their lack of obedience in those deeper ways. They're kind of trying to like bargain with God, right? Like here's 10% of my basil, don't make me go help those poor people down the street. And so Jesus says, give as alms those things that are within, meaning give out of your heart a love for God and a love for your neighbor. Make that the thing that you're tithing. Make that the core of your religious activity. And then, out of that, let those other things grow. Verse 43, Jesus keeps going. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now Jesus is really drilling down into the heart, right? If the Pharisee's heart isn't where it should be, what's really going on? Jesus says, really what's happening is that you're in this thing for the approval of others, for the respect and reputation of the people around you. And that's really important to understand what Jesus is criticizing. He's not just going after people who are religious, but whose heart isn't in it. That's a problem. But what Jesus is actually saying is that there's a way of being religious where your heart is worshiping a false god. He's saying that, like, Your heart is about approval, right? It's about greed and money. It's about these worldly things. It's about these idols. And you're using the worship of God to actually pursue those idols of your heart. And then verse 44, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So we mentioned that idea of ceremonial uncleanness, another one of those rules. Jesus is really tweaking a lot of the Pharisees' pet rules Um, You couldn't contact, in the Old Testament, if you contact a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean. And so they had added, like, you couldn't walk over a grave. And there were laws in Israel about how you had to put up tombstones and mark graves so that people wouldn't accidentally walk over a dead body and become unclean. But Jesus says, you are like unmarked graves. Meaning that the Pharisees' religion is corrupt in a way that doesn't just affect them, but that these people see them and follow them and learn from them and are actually being corrupted by this false way of being religious. All right. That's a lot, and we're only halfway through Jesus' woes, but let's pause for a minute and just process all of that. 
If I could sum up this first part of what Jesus is saying, he's saying in different ways, simply that true religion, true Christianity, must arise from the heart, and particularly from a heart that loves God and loves the people that God has created. That it's, it involves, it's going to spill over into these outward actions, including some religious actions, but that true religion has to rest on loving God and loving neighbor, or else it's going to become corrupt. And I feel like, as I sat with this, I feel like there's like 80 different ways I could try to illustrate that. But the one that I found myself thinking about, because I had had a couple of conversations about it, and because I have kids, and as they're getting older, I know there's some conversations that, that I am and have to continue to have with them. But I was thinking about growing up in the church and sort of the way that, as a teenager, people talked about moral purity. And I especially mean in terms of sex, like as a teenager growing up in the church, that um, that sexual purity was this thing they talked about. Because we didn't have ceremonial purity, right? But se- moral purity was definitely a category. And I was thinking about that because... On the one hand, of course, like, it's good to call people to that, right? We're called to be pure, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says. Paul tells Timothy to set an example for the believers in terms of his doctrine and his purity. And that includes things like our sexuality. That's, that's all good stuff. But I feel like there was this deep dysfunction in the way that it got talked about as I grew up. And here's what I think it is. Um... When as a young person, I feel like I heard people talk about purity, what they were always really trying to communicate is this idea that what you don't want to be is dirty, right? That if you don't obey God's call, you're going to be dirty, you're going to be ugly, you're going to be unwanted, you're going to be ashamed. And, I I mean, seriously, man, youth pastors, like, chewed bubble gum and stuff, like, they did these, you know, like, gross things to try to communicate that idea of you don't want to be dirty. And that's really problematic for two reasons. The one that's not really what we're talking about today, but that's a problem is that that meant that when people struggled or sinned, they just got destroyed, right? And there are people that bear this deep burden of guilt and shame. But the reason I was thinking about it is because that also actually misses the biblical idea of purity because it is fundamentally selfish. It's saying, why do you want to be pure? Because you don't want to be one of those dirty, ugly people. And layered on top of that as a teenager, there was all this stuff about like having a perfect marriage and stuff if you would just do what God commanded. But it was all about you serving yourself and selfishly wanting to be a certain way. And first of all, that absolutely created the kind of hypocrisy that that Jesus calls out the Pharisees for, right? Where people would try to keep the outside of the cup looking clean, but but inside it wasn't. And I mean... For all of us, and especially when you're a teenager, right? Like, obviously, in your heart, you're wrestling with that impurity. But on a deeper level, that problem is that, like, purity in Scripture, first and foremost, is about loving God. It's about the fact that God is perfect and pure, and we're meant to behold his beauty, and out of that, simply love and delight in what is beautiful and true and pure, and, you know, and seek to grow that way. Not because we're trying to be a certain way, but just because that's good, and that's right, and that's how God is, and love for God should inspire that. And then secondarily, purity in Scripture is actually about others. Throughout the Old Testament, the idea of impurity is really about caring for the community. And even when you talk about moral purity, let me just give one example I was thinking about from those teenage years about sexuality and sexual purity. One of the verses that would always get quoted is from 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Which is a command, you know, be self-controlled, be sexually pure. But why 
I feel like people didn't then read verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter. The whole point of that command in Scripture is to not hurt people, right? To care for other people. Like, that was the reason that God was commanding it. Not because of something that has to do with us being a certain way, but out of a concern for the people that God places us in relationship with. And I use that, like I said, that's just one example, but but that underlying reality where we use ideas like purity or religion in general, right, or morality in a way that's fundamentally selfish to motivate people rather than in a way that's about loving God and loving neighbors, that happens all the time. I mean, I hear the way people talk about church so often, right? It's like, why do we go to church? Well, it's because we're good church-going people, right? I mean, especially in the rural Midwest. I still hear people say that to me, saying like, this is a good person. They're a church-going person. And I'm like, the Pharisees were church-going people. Like, that doesn't mean anything. You know, I mean, or, 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 or there's these other selfish ways, like, oh, you, should, you know, be a ch- go to church because, like, it's going to make you feel really good, and it's going to, you know, it's going to fix these problems for you. Whereas, like, biblically, we're called to go, first, because God is worthy of worship and commands us to gather and worship him. And secondly, like, pretty much every biblical command about gathering with the saints is about other people, right? It's encourage one another, sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's about neighbors and God rather than us. Or, or helping people, right? Doing good works in the world. I mean, it's so easy for people to do that out of a desire to be seen a certain way or to see themselves a certain way, right? Rather than out of just love for God and desire to serve the people that he's created. Religion goes wrong when it becomes about a heart that is fundamentally selfish and self-serving. Actually, just one side note about that before we keep going in the sermon. That's also why... I mean, I'm kind of intentionally speaking to most of us probably are in that religious category, not just the spiritual category. But if you're in that place where you're kind of spiritual but not religious, if I can just push a little on you, hopefully you appreciate me beating up on religion. But if you're in that place, I would just suggest to you to maybe consider you haven't actually solved that underlying problem in the way that you're living, right? You've probably seen these abuses in religion and sort of are angry about that. But if selfishness, self-centeredness is the underlying problem, saying, I'm just going to stop caring, stop being involved with other people, and it's only going to be me and God, right? I'm only going to worry about my kind of internal religious life. In a lot of ways, that's that same breed of selfishness, right? Like, what we really need is to die to that in a way that's about others, about community, and building people up. So I just, if you're in that place, maybe think about that. But that said... Back to Jesus and religion. So, if you want to then pick up in our reading, this is actually one of my favorite moments in the whole Gospels, I have to say. But so, verse 45, one of the lawyers answers Jesus, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. So, this is a teacher of God's law, not a lawyer like in our world. But the the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are sort of allies, sort of related groups. But they're also sort of competing with each other and don't like each other. So you can imagine the scribes, the teachers of the law, are kind of like, initially they're like, yeah, those Pharisees, that's right, Jesus. And then he keeps talking, and they start getting nervous. And so he's just like, no, hold on a minute, Jesus. Like, yeah, those Pharisees. But, I mean, you're saying this stuff, you know, we're cool, right? And then verse 46, Jesus very diplomatically responds, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. 
So then he shifts to the, the teachers of the law, and his first criticism of them is that they load others with heavy burdens and don't try to help them. And notice, the real problem is not the heaviness of the burden. Now, Jesus would probably think that they make the burden too heavy, which is why he invites people to take his light yoke on them. But the problem is that they're loading people down with God's commands and God's law, and they're not seeking to help them. They're, they're, they're trying to convict these people of their sin and tell them that they need to change, but they're not interested in doing the work to actually help those people grow and change. And man, that absolutely is something that we as Christians can be guilty of. It is something that I, I as a pastor, reflect on because I have seen preachers be guilty of that. I always think about, I knew this person, um, they were really struggling in their marriage. They talked about, I remember them telling me about this once, this experience in church. They were really struggling in their marriage, and there was a lot of brokenness, and they went, and the preacher gave this really, like, fiery, in-your-face, like, you know, marriage is super important to God, and you need to work on it and sacrifice and have a good marriage sermon. And they were just, you know, kind of heartbroken and convicted and heavy, but they went to the pastor and to some other people they knew at the church and were just like, man, like, I'm really struggling in my marriage. Can you help me, right? Can, is there, like, marriage counseling, or can, you know, someone meet with us? Can we get help? Nobody had any interest in helping. That is what Jesus is talking about. And we can do that, right? Anytime that we're willing to criticize and challenge people in their sin, but then if they say, can you help me with this? Can we, like, sit and talk about it? Can you support me and, you know, and, and try to care for me in this process? If you're not willing to do that, you're piling heavy burdens on them, but you're not willing to touch it. Then the next woe, which is longer, but I'm going to read all of it, starting in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So there's a lot there, but basically here's what's going on. What Jesus is calling out is a certain pride that the teachers of the law took in their history and identity and the group that they're in. A certain pride that made them feel righteous while ignoring and denying the sin in their own past. So the prophets in the Old Testament tended to be these religious outsiders. A couple of them were priests, but mostly they were like, you know, wild men from the desert and things like that, that God sent to his people to call out their sin. And the prophets in the Old Testament were consistently ignored and rejected, and in some cases murdered, for, for bringing God's word to God's people, right? But in Jesus' day now, what had happened was the, the, the religious leaders would say, we are great. Israel is great. And you know why we're great? God sent his prophets to us. Like God revealed his word to us. That's how special we are. And they'd build these fancy tombs, right, for like tourism and all to kind of express their national pride that they were the people that God had sent the prophets, ignoring the fact that they were also the people that had murdered those prophets and that had never listened to them. They're using this sense of identity and group belonging to make themselves feel righteous while denying the real sin and darkness. And I want to take a minute to just dig into that for us. 
And I feel like I know in some ways this is a challenging one for some of us. So first, let me just say this is the the big principle, not just in this sermon, but in general. Our righteousness as Christians should never rest on anything but Jesus. That's the big picture biblical idea. Our sense that we are righteous, our sense that we are worthy, our sense that we are good should never rest on anything but Jesus. That means that we shouldn't use things like good works to make us feel good, which we're used to saying. It also means that we shouldn't be relying on markers of who we are, our identity, or our group to do that. And here's what I mean. Every group that I am a part of, while there are things that I love and appreciate about it, is marred in significant ways by sin. And so means that I shouldn't use it as a mark of my righteousness. That's true of religious groups. I mean, like Kish is a Presbyterian church, and I know I'm not a big like flag waver, right, guy, but we're Presbyterians, and I'm, you know, theologically I'm grateful for the, the tradition that, that I'm a part of. I'm here for a reason, and I'm great, glad to be part of a denomination that provides accountability and that we can work together for the kingdom. Like, I love parts of that. But it's also true that our history is significantly stained by sin. Just just one one example, right? Back when you were in school and you learned about the Civil War and you learned about how there were all these Southern Christians that defended slavery as biblical and Southern churches and there were these famous theologians like Dabney and Thornwell that wrote these books about how biblical slavery was. Like, if you, you got that in class, those guys were all Presbyterians. I mean, like, we were at the heart of opposition to ending slavery and to the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, that's a reality, a tragic part of our past. And, because I know some of us are like, well, good thing that, I mean, you know, I come to Kish, but good thing I'm not Presbyterian. <laughs> like, that's true of Christianity in general, too, right? Like, if you're just a part of God's people. If you, you know, if you bear the name of Christ in the world and are part of that community, man. I mean, I love that, and I am glad to bear that name and be a part of Jesus' church. But, you know, crusades and witch hunts and racism and defending colonialism and... I mean, all sorts of corruptions, and yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of things in our history of being a part of that group that are stained by sin. But it's true for non-religious labels, too. I mean, sitting with this, I feel like I need to name this one, and this is maybe the hardest one for some of us, but I mean, I am an American, and I love living in America. I don't want to live in any other country, and I believe in a lot of the ideas of America and, you know, kind of wish that everyone in the world did. But absolutely our heritage is stained by sin in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, we wrote slavery into our Constitution. We broke dozens of treaties with American Indians and killed most of them. I mean, things like the occupation of the Philippines and the firebombing of Japan that we don't really even talk about, where we intentionally killed hundreds of thousands of civilians— even even in more recent memories, right, from the number of the unborn that we abort to the way that within living memory, like, people in our families oppose things like civil rights in the country. I mean, all of that should remind us that we have that reality in our heritage. And here's why I'm naming all of that, all right? Many of us feel uncomfortable with that. And some of that discomfort comes from a fine sense of loyalty, right? Whether about Presbyterian or American or whatever, right? There's a fine sense of It's like the, it's like the, I mean, I'm willing to talk about how my family has issues, you know, but if you you talk about my family's issues, you know, then I'm going to punch you in the face, right? Like, you know, you have that sense of loyalty, and that's fine, but we do have to be careful because that loyalty can so easily morph into a marker of a sense of righteousness, where we start saying, because I'm in this group, I'm better 
than others. I'm more valuable than others. I'm sort of special or above human sin. And the best test of that is whether we're able to be honest about the broken parts of our past. The best way to tell whether it started to morph into a sense of self-righteousness is whether we can admit the sin and brokenness. And we can do all of that because our righteousness as Christians rests only on Jesus. We're free to acknowledge that brokenness because thanks to Jesus we stand righteous before God and we are whole and accepted. And that's, that's the only source of true righteousness for us. All right. Finishing up the text. Verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So the teachers of the law felt like they were giving people lots of knowledge. Jesus says, actually, they're robbing people of it. And the key, I think, to understanding what he's talking about is that word enter. That they haven't entered, they've prevented people from entering. What's he talking about entering? In Luke, it's pretty clear, as you, if you've kind of been following along, that what Jesus means is entering the kingdom of God. He talks, he's talking regularly about entering God's kingdom throughout the Gospels. And what he means by that is this. He means that true religion, true faith, true Christianity is a giving of the whole self to God. It is a saying, God, here is my heart, and here is my mind, and here is my body, and here are my resources, and here's my time, and here's my identity, and family, and everything, and I am going to come and say, you are king, I am laying these down before you and giving myself to you. And crucially, that is a choice that you have to make. It's not just saying that is not enough to do it, right? Just going through some outward religious motions is not enough to do it, right? You can, you can put your 10% of the money in the offering plate and still not have a sense that, you know, what you own belongs to God. You can, go, you can act religious without actually entering in and giving your whole self to God. And that, Jesus is saying, is what the teachers of the law have done. That they go through the motions, but their hearts are still their own. One of the things that happens in false religion in general is that people often act and talk as if they have given themselves to the Lord, but they haven't. They're still actually serving their idols. And those people um, have never really entered in, and they tend to really get angry when they have to deal with people that have really given their whole selves to God. I remember just thinking about a guy that I was friends with in college that I lived for a little while, lived with for a little while, and he was great. Um... Grew up in this Christian family, you know, went to church every Sunday, had all the religious knickknacks, but got to college and felt like he had really just met Jesus for the first time and um, was really growing in his faith. He was, he was a cool guy, but he, was, he started processing through maybe feeling like he was called to become a missionary. And he did not end up becoming a missionary. He's an engineer and has a wife and kids, and, but still loves Jesus and is serving him. And I feel like in college, a lot of people I knew kind of processed that as part of that, you know, feeling like the Lord was moving. But he was thinking about it, and he's like, well, I'm just, I'm going to talk to my parents about this, right? Like, they're Christians, they'll be excited, we'll be able to, you know, to get some wisdom from them. And spoiler, that conversation did not go well. But as he told me about it, it was so interesting to hear the kinds of things they said. Things like, yeah, man, like, you, we know that you love Jesus and we love Jesus, but there's other stuff that's really important in life, too. Or like, you know, I mean, faith is just like, it's, a, it's an important priority, but you've got a lot of different priorities that you should be considering. And they talked a lot about 
grandkids and money and things like that, right? And, and what was so clear as I heard him process through that and the tensions, and this, this was an ongoing thing for a while for him, um, it was so clear to me that the problem was that he really wanted to give his whole self to God, whatever that took, whatever Jesus was asking him for. His parents had never actually done that. And more than that, as the process progressed, they became increasingly hostile to his desire to do it. Right? It, got, it got ugly, and they like, cut him off financially and were threatening to disown him <laughs> because he might you know, consider serving Jesus by going on to the missions field. And of course, that's the end point of the scribes and Pharisees too. Right After all of this, verse 53 says, Jesus went away from there and the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. And they start watching Jesus and plotting. And of course, this is one of the early events that foreshadows the cross, which is probably the best warning I know against false religion. Jesus was not killed by atheists. I mean, while technically the Romans were the ones that did the crucifying, Jesus wasn't killed by pagans. He was killed by the most religious people in his world. Because in the religion, they rejected him. So as we close, that's hard. (laughs) That's a lot of hard stuff. And you know, my instinct a lot of times as a pastor in wrapping up a sermon like that is to kind of like make us all feel better. Um, And, but, but you know what, as I sat with this, I think that in some ways Jesus intends this to be an especially challenging text. And while there will be good grace in weeks to come, I want us to just maybe sit this week in that. And let me just instead give you three diagnostic questions coming out of all of that to sit with and reflect on as we wrestle with whether there are ways that we've let that kind of false religion into our hearts. Three questions. The first one is, do you prioritize others in your faith? Is Christianity at heart about serving other people and about caring for and blessing other people, or is it about serving yourself? Does what you do in your religious life naturally overflow into serving and loving and being kind and charitable? Or does it actually maybe discourage you from that and make you kind of pull away from other people? So do you prioritize others? Secondly, and man, this is the one that I consistently come back to in my own heart because it's what often convicts me of this. Do you easily get defensive? Do you easily get defensive when you're challenged, when you feel like your sins might be exposed? Do you, are you able to say, my righteousness rests on Jesus and it is secure? Or do you feel the need to say, no, I'm a good person. I, you know, I, I need to defend myself. When people criticize me, <laughs> this is what, like, the, the question I often wrestle with is, it's not that, I mean, I don't have to agree with them at the end of the day, right? But am I open to considering that they might be right? And am I open to considering that, like, I might really be in sin? And if I'm not, that's a dangerous sign. Am I being defensive? And then last, have you given your whole self to God? Have you made that choice to say, Lord, all that I am, whatever you ask, whatever you call me to, you're my king and I'm laying this down before you. Do you try to bargain with God to get out of parts of that? Do you try to, to just kind of outwardly act like it? Or have you really given your whole self to God? I invite you to just sit this week in those questions. And as you do, one encouragement as you feel yourself convicted maybe in some of those ways cast yourself on jesus and embrace him know that he is eager to embrace you 
the thing you have to recognize about this whole speech, as harsh and as in-your-face as it is, is that this is not Jesus rejecting the Pharisees. There is a sort of sense that ultimately they are rejected because they reject Jesus, but in this speech, he's not rejecting them. Instead, he's calling them to repent and enter into relationship with him. That's the whole reason he spends all this time addressing them, right? Is to call them to recognize their false religion and repent and experience his embrace and fellowship instead. So as you feel convicted, I invite you to receive that grace and welcome and give yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, I repent. Repent of the ways in my own heart that I recognize that it is so easy for me try to stand on my own righteousness, to try to use your things to make me feel good about myself, to become too attached to groups that I'm a part of. Yeah, just in so many ways, I recognize that these tendencies are in my heart, that they're in our hearts. Pray that you would forgive us for them. And Father, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit to give us that true religion that is pure and undefiled, that delights in you and praises you that longs to serve and bless others, that humbly lays ourselves down at your feet and at the feet of those in need. Father, work that kind of true, selfless, loving, God-honoring faith in our midst. And as you do that, Lord, may it stand as a beacon to the world that those who have maybe seen false religion and turned away from it might be drawn to the true life of Christ. Pray this all in his name.